um, in our uh, Wednesday night Bible study, where uh, we go through a book of the Bible, one verse at a time. Now, what we've been doing is we've been going through the Old Testament. We started at Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we've gone pretty much one verse at a time, skipping over some really boring parts, but pretty much one verse at a time. Uh, and, and we just finished with 2 Kings. Now, everything to this point has been pretty much chronological. From the very beginning, we've been tracking how God has moved through the Jewish nation in preparation for the Messiah to come. Well, we've been reading uh, the account of kings. And in the uh, account of kings, we've been reading how one king went to the next king. And they were very, very general in their... uh, a summary of kind of what happened. We're going through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history. As they say, this king did this and this king did that. And, you know, they would mention a couple of the major things they did or did not do, but didn't get into a lot of detail, but just kept going along. But basically gave us the sense of how these kings kept disobeying God and how the people kept disobeying God and God kept warning them and warning them and warning them and they wouldn't listen. Uh, he finally, uh, the, the two kingdoms, you had the northern Ten tribes, and then you had uh, Judah and Benjamin, whoever it was, in, in the south. Well, eventually, the ten tribes of Israel were so wicked, God couldn't take it anymore. He sends in an invading army, takes them all into captivity. They're known as the lost tribes. I mean, these guys were just completely obliterated. Then all the focus went to Judah, pretty much. Uh, of, you know, this is David's line, where the Messiah came from, and God's kept working with them, but they still had the same struggles. They'd have some guys who would do good, but then they kept falling back into just horrible, horrible sins uh, that we've been touching on as we've been going through this study. Well, finally, God has had it up to here. Now, these guys had been punished, at times went through very difficult uh, times where God would punish them, and then they would turn back to God, and then uh, he'd send a redeemer or, or someone to help pull them out of the mess that they were in. But they would never really lost everything. Until this point. Now God had had it. And because they were so bad. I mean these guys were wicked and, and, and Satan worship. And they, the one king was sacrificing his own son to this God. And you know burn him alive as a human sacrifice. I mean these guys had gotten so far off of the track that Moses had them on. And God was so tired of it all. He finally sent in an invading army to them. And took them away into captivity for some 70, 75 years, whatever it is. Uh, and and uh, this is when they lost everything. There was nothing left. And as a result of this, they finally seemed to get their act together because by the time they came back, and we'll pick that up again in the narrative and show you how, how the rest of the New Testament comes up to the time of Jesus. Um, you know, they came back and really from that time on, they didn't have any more of the same problems. You don't see them having this problem worshiping false idols and Satan worship and stuff like this. For some reason, they kept falling into the same pattern over and over and over and over until God seriously kicked their butts and jerked the slack out of them and they finally pulled it together and they held it together and and then however many hundred years, 400 years, whatever, Jesus comes and uh, we get the beginning of the the Christian faith, the New Testament. So, now, what I want to do, now we've covered a lot of of territory as we've gone through Kings. Um, Now, there's lots of books in your Old Testament that you'll look at with real strange names like, you know, Amos and Hezekiah or whatever, not Hezekiah, it's not a book, uh, 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 (laughs) 
Hosea, you know, all these, all these little times. Then you got the big ones like Ezekiel and Isaiah. So the question is, where do all those come in? Most of what you now have in the Old Testament that you're looking at, and at times might kind of overwhelm you, was really written during that space of time of these kings. These, this was God sending these men to prophesy, to warn them, to speak in through the lives, to stop doing what they were doing. And uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, now, and, and we'll be, obviously this will take weeks and weeks and weeks as we continue to study through the Old Testament. But uh, start to show you where some of these books fit chronologically and try to explain some of them to you. Now, we're not going to read them all, uh, you know, like Isaiah or Lamentations or Ezekiel. You'll want to be pulling your eyeballs out, you know, as we go through this because uh, from our viewpoint, it's extraordinarily boring because they are literally speaking to and about what was happening in the nation at the time of these kings. We could study it in great detail. Some people like to study that sort of thing. Go for it. Uh, you know, I mean, I've read it all, but uh, not great fun. Because it, there's no sense, in, from my viewpoint as a pastor, to teach all of that to you. Because even though I can teach it to you and show you what they were talking about, it really has nothing to do with us. It really, there's no benefit from us going through all that. Certainly, it's worth uh, your own read if you want to read it, but, but not in a, a form like this to sit there and read, you know, all the verses through, you know, lamentations or something like this. It's very, very, very difficult to do. So, but I do want to go through, and I want to sh- at least maybe take portions of the different books and show you where in that line of all this history that we've been looking at through the kings, we're going we're gonna to back up now and say, okay, this book fits in here, and this one fit in here, and this prophet showed up here, 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 during this king. And kind of just give you a sense, more of a sense of what the Old Testament is for you, okay? So, you know, it's not exactly um, rocket science, but I think it would be very helpful for those of you who want to understand your Bibles better, particularly the Old Testament, which can be difficult to understand. Now, um, what, what has happened since first kings this is when david comes along and and then of course uh that's where the book of psalms comes from you if you look at the big book of psalms all these very poetic things uh this was written when david was going through a lot of his struggles uh and and at one time we stopped and showed you some of the actual psalms that he wrote during a particular event it was kind of fun to see you know the context of these but that that's where the book of psalms comes from. that's all that david wrote then you have his son solomon who's the wisest man who ever lives this guy's absolutely brilliant and he writes the book of proverbs that's where you see psalms in the book of proverbs and proverbs are the saying of this brilliant there's a couple of the guys in there that contribute but most of it's solomon who has these brilliant insights into life and to righteousness and I really encourage you to read the Psalms and the Proverbs. Again, something that you do in your own devotional time is something that, you know, I don't think would fit very well in, in this kind of a forum. But some brilliant, brilliant stuff that you can pick out of the book of, uh, of uh, Proverbs. Then he also wrote another book called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. Now, this is a song about him and this woman he's absolutely crazy about. The whole thing's about love and sex, and it's just fabulous, you know. And uh, I encourage you to read that. <laughs> it's very entertaining, okay? Uh, now, for centuries, theologians have tried to convince us it's not about sex. You know, it's an allegorical writing about God's love for the church. No, it's not, you idiots. For crying out loud, I don't know why. They, I think the church has always been so afraid of the subject of sex. They've got to come up with some other thing. Trust me, it's not about Jesus and your church. The whole thing is about a man in love with a woman, and they are crazy about each other and have fabulous sex. Hallelujah. I'm a big fan. All right. So, 
That's the Song of, of Songs, Song of Solomon. Now, Solomon becomes the most successful king ever. And, and the Bible says there was nobody as brilliant before he ever existed, and no one would ever be as brilliant after he existed. So to this day, there's never been a human being as smart as this man. He was brilliant and successful beyond measure. He was paid, as we saw in our study, in gold, not in pieces of gold. His annual salary was measured in tons of gold. Tons of gold. Now, understanding that an ounce of gold is worth a thousand dollars. Can you imagine a paycheck of tons of gold? I'd just like to have a bar. That'd be great. It'd be awesome. Retire off the bar. But these tons, this guy was so wealthy. And at some point, all of his intelligence and all this brilliance that opened, it kind of caused him to go astray. And, uh, and, and while he didn't do anything really majorly nasty like the kings who came after them, you know, he kind of got a little jaded in his heart and he was constantly looking for something else to make him happy. I mean, what makes you happy when you know everything? What else is there to learn when you know everything already? I mean, the brilliance that got poured into this guy's brain is, is unmeasurable. I mean, he knew and ever understood everything like that. And probably not even understanding why he did, other than that God gave him this wisdom. It's actually quite amazing uh, of, of how it all happened. So, you know, he tried this and he tried that and he tried this. And, he, and, you know, obviously the Song of Solomon, he liked the one chick. He thought, well, if one's great, let me try a couple of more. And uh, the guy winds up with, uh, what was it, uh, 300 wives and 700 concubines, which is like a wife, but doesn't have the legal standing of a wife, but you still get the bennies of the wife, okay? So here's a man who has a thousand women. Now what you do with a thousand women is beyond comprehension. If he had one at morning, noon, and dinner every day, it would take him a year, he still wouldn't get through all 1,000 of them. I mean, holy stinking cow, that's a, that's a lot of ladies. Anyway, so he was into that. And then toward the end, he writes this third book called Ecclesiastes. So that's, that's where you get Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Psalms, and Ecclesiastes. I want to see just part of Ecclesiastes here. This is Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, the first verse. This is Solomon writing this. And, uh, and you can see he, life has really lost zing for him. Because, because he's kind of, he got away from God, really. He wasn't supposed to marry these women. It wasn't that he couldn't had the wives. Why he'd want so many, I don't know. But he started getting the kind of wives God told him that he shouldn't get. Okay, from other nations and stuff that would turn him away from God. And anyway, so he got himself in trouble. As he got away from God, he maintained the wisdom that God had given him. But if you know and have everything without God, what point is there to life? Really, when you think about it. It is he who gives us life. It's he who gives us meaning. You can know, have everything like he had. But without God breathing life into you, it's meaningless. I know a lot of people think, gee, if I could just get really successful financially, I'd be happy. Gee, if I could just get this, I could have it. Gee, if I could get a new wife, much less a thousand new wives, you know, I could really be happy. But no, you won't. True happiness comes from God. There's a hole inside of us that only God can fill. And you can throw as much stuff in there as you want, trying to fill it. It will not fill it. Okay? And that's what he did. So look at as he writes this book. He starts out, he says, these are the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is Solomon. This is his message. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utter meaningless. He was a positive man. 
Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It turns and blows to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Pretty brilliant. Uh thought from a man who did not know science as we know but yet he was brilliant he basically was acknowledging the fact that all that evaporation comes up comes back over rains and flows back out again okay all things are wearisome more than one can say all of life was a complete burden to him at this point the eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear it's full of hearing what has been will be again what has been done will be done again there's nothing new under the sun is there anything of which one can say look this is something new ah it was here already a long time ago it was here before our time there's no remembrance of men of old and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow that's just the opening salvo of this very depressing book okay so that's the book of Ecclesiastes. so we get psalms from david those three books from solomon and then as kings go along, then we start putting it uh, into context. Now, the uh, first place is when we get to, um, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, first Kings, the 14th chapter. I'm sorry, Second Kings. Second Kings, the 14th chapter. Up to this point, it's been pretty much all David and, and Solomon. Uh, and it's talking about these different kings. Uh, it says in verse 23, Second Kings 14:23, In the 15th year of Am- Amaziah, son of Joash, we already read this, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, King of Israel became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as they were all doing over and over again, and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to sin. These are some of the first really nasty kings. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, to the Sea of Arabah. I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't care. In accordance with the word of God, apparently this restoring of the boundaries is something that a prophet came and prophesied and said would happen. And according to his prophecy, we don't know the prophecy, but he's saying this is something that a prophet told him and it did happen. Again, see, they're very general. They cover lots of ground very quickly. But this, uh, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, this prophet by the name of Jonah, son of Amittai, whatever his name is, the prophet from Gath, Heifer. Now, that's all we know of Jonah in this statement. This is where Jonah pops in. Okay? So, um, now to understand what this is. Now, Jonah has his own book uh, where um, God speaks to Jonah. You can find the book of Jonah in your Bible. We're going to go through it in just a minute uh, and, and read it. It's very interesting. But uh, Jonah, God had told Jonah to go... Uh, preach to Nineveh. You guys, most of you heard the story at all. If it's new to you, we'll explain it. But God spoke to him and said, go to Nineveh. And he didn't want to go. And he ran. And uh, if you've ever heard any sermons on this subject, it's always put in the context of people who maybe are afraid to share their faith or aren't willing to go and share the good news. And, and Jonah was afraid to go really share the good news with these people. All complete misinterpretations of what happened with Jonah. What happened with Jonah was he's a prophet. Okay, we see him here. This is he comes along in the eighth uh, uh, chapter or fourteenth chapter of, of the uh, of Second Kings, one of the early kings, and Jonah's this prophet. 
Well, God tells him to go and preach to Nineveh to tell them to repent. Well, he doesn't want them to repent. So he doesn't go. Why would he not want them to repent? Again, some very bizarre sermons I've heard on this, but it's really not within context at all. Um, It's like um, the time that uh, this one guy came to Elisha. And I want to go back and read this again. This is 2 Kings uh, chapter 8, verse 9. It's Haziel, okay? He's a servant of one of these kings, Ben-Hadad or whatever his name was. So Haziel went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift of 40 camel loads of the finest wares of Damascus. And he went in and stood before him and he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? Now we've studied this and talked about it many times, but these guys had very dysfunctional relationships. They were always at war trying to kill each other, but yet at the same time, they had certain levels of decorum and they would appreciate, you know, because this was a well-known prophet, they would bring gifts and they wanted to hear the prophet speak about this king, even though they were at war. It's all very, very bizarre stuff. So anyways, the, this king sends him, says, you know, ask this prophet if I'm going to die. So Elisha answered and said, well, go and say to him, you will certainly recover. That's what you're supposed to say. But God has told me, the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. Because what happens is we know that Hazel kills the king and makes himself king. And Elijah knew this. Of course, Hazel's not playing any hand in this. And then, and then this verse, 11. Elijah stares at him with a fixed gaze until Hazel felt ashamed. I mean, Elijah just stared. What's happening is as Elijah is looking at him, as a prophet, he can see the future. And he sees what a horrible king, this servant basically, he's a messenger who comes, who, who has this big coup. What a horrible guy this is going to become. So he stares at him until he feels ashamed. And then it says the man of God, Elisha, starts to cry. He starts to weep. And Haziel says, why are you crying? And he says, because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites. You will set fire to their fortified places. You will kill their young men with the sword. Dash their children to the ground. And rip open their pregnant women. He's going to be just a massacre of a person. Who's going to reap havoc and death on the nation that Elisha loves. The people of God. And Hazel says, well, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a thing? And then he says, the Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. And he does. He murders Ben-Hadad. And, uh, and then sets him up as king. And he, in fact, becomes this horrible person that torments and, and does all these things uh, to Israel. Um, and I think we talked about it at the time. Why would Elisha be telling him? Why wouldn't Elijah kill the guy right on the spot so this wouldn't happen? Well, because he knew it had to happen, because this was God's hand. God was going to use this horrible man to bring judgment on, um, on Israel. Well, the same deal is with Jonah. Jonah knows the Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of, the, of, of Assyria. And the Assyrians came in, as we read, came in and, 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 you know, caused all this war and destruction and all this punishment. God used the Assyrians to bring great punishment on Israel. So when God told Jonah, go preach to Nineveh, it wasn't that he was afraid. He wasn't running from the call of God in his life or all the other sermons that are made from this. He knew who the Ninevites were. God says, if they don't repent, I'm going to kill them. So go tell them to repent. And he's thinking, I don't want them to repent. I want you to kill them. That's the context of Jonah. So it'll make a lot more sense. So let's go to Jonah. And while we won't go to uh, and read through every one of these verses, especially or books, especially some of the real 
complicated prophetic ones. I do want to go through Jonah because I think it's, it's very, very interesting. So now here's the context. This is this little book in your Bible. It's totally out of place. I mean, it should be way back by kings. But all these, you know, they, they, it's, everything's chronological. And then they throw all these books in there. And it's kind of confusing to people. But. So here it is. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Remember, we just read about him. He's the one who prophesied to this rotten king in, uh, uh, in that verse we just read. So he tells to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now you have to remember, he's not running from the call of God, although he's disobeying God. He's not afraid. He doesn't want, it's not that he doesn't want to go into the mission fields or all these other different analogies people have used. You can make the analogies, I guess. But the reality is he knew if he preached to them, there was a chance they'd repent, God would forgive them, and then they would come and bring all this death and destruction on Israel. That's his whole motive here. So Jonah runs away from the Lord and heads for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He's running from God. Not because he's afraid, but he doesn't want God to forgive these people. He wants God to kill them all and spare this horrible judgment that's coming on Israel. Well, then the Lord said, you know, it's a bad plan. I mean, he's a prophet. How dumb can you be? You're going to run from God. Yeah, like God's not going to find you. So the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Uh, Now, I don't know if you've ever been on on a big boat or something like even a cruise ship or something where it gets really nasty and the boat's rocking back and forth, and everybody's falling all over the place. The only people walking straight are the drunk people because they're just working for them, you know. But uh, uh, everybody's all, oh, and there's people sick and they're throwing up, and everybody's, oh, this is horrible. Are we going to die? Are we gonna? Well, nobody on the crew is afraid because they've been through this a million times, okay? It's very familiar ground to them. They're just trying to calm you all down. It'll be fine. The boat's fine. Well, now you have to understand, these are sailors. These are not, you know, you know, Girl Scout cookie salesman. Okay? These are tough men who live their life on the sea. They are terrified about the storm that they are in. So you've got to assume this is one nasty storm. Me, I'd freak out, you know, if the first sign of something going wrong with these guys were tough. But it got really bad. So they all started crying out to their gods because they each came from different countries and different places around places around the world and they're praying out to their gods trying to save them because they're all scared to death. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship because they didn't want the ship to break apart. But Jonah had gone below where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. <laughs> so, so everybody's freaking out and praying. And Jonah's like, I ain't praying. I said, nothing, man. I ain't going to say nothing. I keep my mouth shut because I know God and he can't see me here. And I'm just going to hang out and I'm really mad about this whole deal. So he's sleeping. He's chilling out. Uh, the captain goes down and says, how can you sleep? You Nimrod, get out of bed. Call on your God. Maybe he will notice us and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, all right, something's really wrong. Something is really wrong here. One of you guys is really nasty. Some of you did something terrible. They had a sense that there was a divine hand of God in this. They didn't understand God as you and I understand God. But they had enough sense to know what they were experiencing that was scaring the willies out of them. This was not normal. This was beyond anything they had experienced. So there's a, there's a divine hand in here. This has got to be a punishment for something that somebody had done. 
So they said, um, uh, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So that was their way of, you know, divining, you know, uh, before the gods, you know. And whoever has the shortest straw or the longest straw, whatever the deal is, he's, he'll be the one. So they mix everything up and they hand out this, the, the lots and uh, they cast lots. And then the uh, short one or the long one, whatever the case was, fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What did you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and the land. Well, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. It was totally out of control. So they asked them, Why sh- uh, what should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Well, Jonah said, look, the only way you're going to get out of this, you've got to pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Just kill me. Just kill me. I mean, this guy, he was seriously resolute in not going to Nineveh. He had no intention. And if God caught up with us here and he's going to kill us all, just kill me and it'll all be over with. Well, these guys, I mean, they don't want to do this. They're mortified by this. They're, you know, they're not people of faith as we know but they're decent guys even for sailors and instead the men did their best to row back to land and they're doing it they can't get anywhere for the sea grew even wilder than before again this is not normal what was happening was definitely a divine hand in what was going on then they cried out to the lord lord please don't make us die for taking this man's life i mean they're repenting to god because they're about to kill jonah God, please don't kill us because we're going to kill this guy. And we don't want to do this and we don't know what else to do. So they take Jonah and, uh, um, and in verse 15, and they threw him overboard. And as Jonah goes under, the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They said, man, we need to worship this God. Obviously, none of the other gods worked. You know, clearly, if you tick off the Lord, it's a bad sign. Let us worship the Lord. So they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows to the Lord. They're going to commit their lives to God because they were very impressed by what they had just gone through. But anyway, so Jonah's going, blah, 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 blah. He just wants to die. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from the depths of the grave. I called. And then he goes through this whole prayer and it's very poetic. You can read this on your own time. And uh, so anyway, the Lord commands the fish and it vomits Jonah onto dry land. Which is pretty gross. So he's in the belly of this fish. You know, people say, well, did that really happen? Did that? Yeah, I believe it really happened. The Bible said, why would they make it up? Even, even Jesus quoted Jonah, you know, as a factual event. This is not some bizarre thing. This whale or whatever it was swallowed this man. Say, well, how can he live in the belly of a fish for three days? Because it's God who did it. God can pretty much do anything he wants. For heaven's sakes. So the Lord commands the fish and he bleh, up on the dry land. Now, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go into the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to, uh, to it the message I gave you. So Jonah goes, oh. you know, he's had a rough three days. You know, almost dying on that stupid ship. He's in the belly of a fish for three days. 
you know, kind of gets your attention after a while. Now, God, by the way, knows how to get your attention. And uh, God's very patient. He can outweigh you. And he can outweight you. And he can do anything he needs to do to get into your head. So finally, Jonah obeys the word of the Lord. And he goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit alone took three days. This is a big city. On the first day, Jonah goes into the city and he starts proclaiming. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's all he said. He's going in and says, God is going to destroy this place in 40 days. That was his message. It wasn't a message of mercy. It wasn't a message of, he wasn't encouraging them to repent. He was just telling them, God's going to kill all y'all. Well, they believed what he said. And they believed God. And they declared a fast. And all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So, amazingly, this pagan city, just because Jonah comes in and proclaims God's judgment is coming, they quick humble themselves before God and they cry out to God and ask God to forgive them. Uh, and then it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Now some people say, well, how is it possible that he would have such an effect going in other than the divine nature of God uh, dealing with people? Um, I, I read a, a fascinating uh, expository on this whole thing. And this guy went back and he, and he looked into the history of the Syrians and stuff like that. This apparently... The Assyrians were very much in worship of things from the sea and all that kind of stuff. Okay? So, what he theorizes is that when this whale or whatever comes up and goes, and this guy comes walking out of the fish, they all saw this. They figured this guy must have been, and who knows what he looked like after three days in the belly of a whale, all white and pasty and stuff, and comes out, that everybody goes, Okay, this is not every day. People don't come belching out of fish and walk onto land and start talking to you. And they, they, he theorized that because they had such fear of things from the sea, that when they witnessed this, that's why they listened to everything he said, which creates an incredible thought process. One could argue that had Jonah just gone in as God had originally said, they may not have listened to him. But the fact that he comes belching out of a fish on their shores and starts talking to them, it, they listen to him. In other words, it's just possible God knew Jonah wouldn't do this, would get in trouble, get swallowed by a fish, and get belched up onto the land, and then everybody would listen. And, you know, God has kind of a way of figuring these things out in the first place. So it was the very act of him trying to fight God that actually put him into God's plan. Very, very fascinating stuff. And then we see this, the, four, the final chapter of the book of Jonah. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Again, I've heard people wrestle with this. Why was he mad? Again, hello, the context. He knows who these people are. 
He wants God to destroy them. They repent. God forgives them. Now he's not going to destroy them. And Jonah is ticked off. Why? Because he knows what's going to happen. He's a prophet. He's seen this. This nation is going to come and torture and torment his countrymen as part of God's judgment. And indeed they did. Uh, We read about it, okay, as we were going through Kings. So he was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still home? I knew you were going to do this. That's why I'm so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. (laughs) This is just horrible. You're the kind of God who forgives people. I you know that's your problem you forgive people if you just kill people sooner we'd be so much better off now he says oh lord take away my life it's better for me to die than to live I mean this guy's bummed just kill me God just kill me this is awful but the lord says do you have any right to be angry but Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city there he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He was still hoping that God would kill them all. Maybe. Maybe God will still kill them. Yes. So, you know, it's like somebody on the 4th of July waiting for the fireworks. So he got his lawn chair out and sat, and he sat and he watched the city because he wants to see God kill them all. At least that's his hope. Well, um, the Lord provided a vine and made it to grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So without a word, all of a sudden this vine starts growing and comes and creates all this shade. And it's great because it's hot out there. And Jonah thought, oh man, I did, this is fabulous. This is great. You know, I got shade. I'm waiting for the, the lightning show to kick in. Uh, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And then when the sun rose, God sent a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head that, so that he grew faint. It was so hot. And he just wanted to die. And he said it would be better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And he says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. He was one mad dude. I mean, this guy had issues. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this stupid vine. Though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? So anyway, that's, that's the book of Jonah. And that puts it into context of what happened, why it happened, and how God used Jonah to send the message to cause them to repent so he would forgive them and not bring all this judgment so that God could use these people to bring judgment on Israel. Pretty all fascinating, huh? Okay, so now... Uh, as, as we continue to do this on Wednesday nights, we're going to go through and we're going to show uh, the book of Amos and uh, Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah. We're going to show bits and pieces of these things, uh, all these different prophets and stuff, and just show you uh, who they were, what king they were talking to at the time. And again, we won't read through all of them because it, it would just be very brutal, but we'll discuss some of the highlights from it. And uh, I don't know how many weeks this will take. We won't take too much time on this, but I just want to give you a sense of where those books in the Old Testament, where they fit chronologically into the history of the Bible. Okay, and then when we're done with that, then we will wrap it up by showing what happens after the captivity, after the 70-some years, 
and God brings them back and then how it comes up to the time of the New Testament and then Jesus, an angel comes, speaks to a little girl, well, young lady, not a little girl, but a young lady by the name of Mary and says, you will be pregnant and you will call him Jesus and uh, God sends the Messiah. Very, very cool stuff. So, And uh, so that will be our journey over the next few weeks.